make it through these repeat slides that we've done for several weeks because you've got to be in the flow. And a couple of you may not have been here each Sunday. And so just be with me. If we want to unlock Revelation with all of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the scroll with the seven seals, you got the dragon and the beast and the woman and the serpent. You've got seven horns. You've got seven bowls of wrath. You've got all of these bizarro numbers. Which, by the way, can be literal, but are almost always symbolic. Whether literal or not, you can add. So, for example, we'll look at, at what Pastor David was talking about today. He had the 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. When we look at it in the Greek, you're going to see that it's measured in stadia, which was the running course of a stadium. We get stadium from it, about 200 yards. And in stadia, it's given as 12,000. And so there's a symbolic significance we lose when we just translate it into miles. So we'll look at all of those numbers and we're going to try to unlock Revelation. But part of our keys to unlocking Revelation are to understand that it's a special kind of literature called apocalyptic literature. That means that it's written with these pictures and these images and these symbols. And it's it's a, a one that's meant to be opened and understood But you've got to understand it through its symbolism. Much of that symbolism is drawn from the Old Testament. The words themselves are Old Testament words. But you'll also find some of it drawn from the New Testament. So, for example, John, writing Revelation, will echo some of the language he uses in his own gospel. And we'll see that some today, especially as we're looking at these chapters. So, with that... We've talked about the significance of the numbers. We've talked about how three was a sacred number. And so the four was an earthly number. Seven, a complete or a full number. Ten was a multiplying number. Now, if ten, adding a zero is a multiplier, what is ten by ten? A square, what would a square be? A hundred? What would a cube be? Three-dimensional, a full square, square, a thousand. And a thousand was a big multiplier for them as well. Um, So we've got the numbers. We saw the sacred numbers that God is holy, holy, holy. They could have just said he's holy once, but they say it three times to emphasize the sacredness. God who was, who is, and who is to come. Jesus is the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of kings. One, two, three. You see that repeatedly with God and holy things throughout the book. We'll see it in these last couple of chapters today. The earthly number is four. There are four elements to the earth. There's fire, water, um, air, and dirt. Um, in, in the ancient thought, we have plasma now today, so sorry. But this is the ancient thought, not today's. Um, so you have four angels, you've got four corners of the earth, you've got the four winds, you've got the four horsemen. I picked four out because four seemed to be the number I was talking about. Seven, a full and complete number. And yes, I'm going through this rapidly, but you've seen this for the last four weeks I've been teaching it. So just keep it in your brain. 
Seven churches, a complete number of churches. Seven spirits, a complete reference to the spirit. The seven stars, the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. There are seven beatitudes in the book. There are seven bowls There are of judgment. There are seven trumpets of warning. There are seven sections of revelation. Seven is a complete number. Twelve is a complete number. Seven is complete because it's all things sacred plus all things earthly. Three plus four equals seven. Twelve's complete because it's all things sacred times all things earthly. And if you think, Lanier, I'm not so sure they use numbers like that. I got news for you. I have totally, totally, totally left out because we didn't have time for it. The gematria associated with Revelation. You're saying, Gahu? Gematria. G-E-M. With a bunch of other letters following. G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. Gematria is... Letters themselves had numerical values. You, you know that because of Roman numerals. The Roman X was also 10. The Roman V was also 5. The Roman I was also 1, right? Roman D is a big one. Uh, Roman M is 1,000. D is 500. C is 100, okay? Same with Greek, same with Hebrew. And so they would actually write words, that have numerical meaning to them. And there's a whole study. This was a big thing among the Jews. It became almost uh, uh, into the Middle Ages, a huge thing. So, yeah, they really tinkered with numbers in ways that we don't. But 12 is a complete number. There are 12 gates to the city. David read the passage, Pastor David, this morning out of Revelation 21. And if the city actually is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, you hope it's got more than 12 gates. Or they need to be pretty big. But 12 is just a complete number. And I'd suggest to you uh, that the 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles, in the text is 1,200 stadia. It's complete. It's as big as it needs to be. It's as tall as it needs to be. It's as wide as it needs to be. It's got every gate it needs to have. Those gates have 12 pearls on them. They got every pearl they need to have because of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 foundations of the city, based upon the 12 apostles with the 12 angels, with the 12 stars, with the 12 fruit. And then we've already seen the 12 thrones times 2. Because there's Old Testament and New Testament complete. Old Covenant, New Covenant. And we know about the 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Everybody that needs to be there is there. Everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There are some religious sects that think only 144,000 are going. If so, man, that's going to be tough. We got 8 billion people on the planet just now. Anyway. The structure of the book, some read the book in a linear fashion, 
As I pointed out last week, that's not a linear fashion. That's a linear fashion. So it starts with the time the book was written, and it works all the way to the end of days, if you read it that way. So you start with the churches, the seven churches that got the letter. You read it to the end of times, which David was reading about today. I opt instead for the parallel view. It's the same way Daniel was written in the Old Testament. It's the same way a lot of the apocalyptic literature is written. And so what we see instead of a timeline, like we might read a history book, we see cycles that repeat themselves over and over. There are seven sections, and each section is repeating itself with a different emphasis. And the illustration I used last week was a track. You have seven lanes to the track. And so you start with lane one, you go to lane two, lane three, lane four, lane five, lane six, lane seven. Each lap around the track is covering the same basic course. Same starting line, same finish line, just with a different emphasis in the lane. And so, for example, the starting line. With each of these seven sections, the starting line is Jesus' earthly ministry. His incarnation or his ministry or his death, burial, and resurrection, it's Jesus' earthly ministry is the starting line for each of the sections. Each of the sections work through an age that we'll call the gospel age. It's the age of the church. It is an age of tribulation. Jesus said in John, in the world you shall have tribulation. Philipsis, same word. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We live in a day of tribulation. So that's the gospel age. And then each section finishes... With the end of days and the end of times. The return of Jesus, the heavenly throne, the time of judgment, the end of times. And so with this as each section, we saw section 1. Section 1 is chapters, Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In section 1 we have Jesus starting out walking among the lampstands. That's what Jesus did. He came to earth, he walked among us. And he was among the church. And you have the letters to the seven churches. And so you've got Jesus among the churches. You've got the letters to the seven churches. And then, whoa, that kind of jumped. Sorry. And then you've got, as it cycles around, Jesus saying, I will come remove your lampstand if you don't get your things right. This whole section, that whole first three chapters, starts out with Jesus and John emphasizing how important it is for the church to be holy. And it's a message for John's day. It's a message for our day. It is a message for next year, should Jesus tarry. It is a message the entire gospel age, the church is called to be holy. And that's the first cycle. Now the second cycle starts with Revelation chapter 4. And in the second cycle, you've got this beginning of, of John seeing the scroll with the seven seals and wanting it open. It's got the, the, the future of the world and of the church. It's got God's people secured. It's the future of the church. 
And nobody is worthy to open it. Absent the lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ, incarnate God, died, buried, resurrected. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is the only one worthy to open the seals that have the future of the church. Because if Jesus never came and died for the church, there would be no church. We're the body of Christ. If Christ has not died and gone to the Father, there is no body of his people here. So only the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. And so during that, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It starts out with Jesus himself riding forth on the white horse. But right on the heels of Jesus comes death. There's martyrdom. There's misery. There's economic travail. There's personal travail. There is tribulation for the body of Christ. The saints are persecuted. And we happen to live in a small bubble where the persecution for us is minuscule compared to where it is for much of the church around this world today and throughout history. But it should never let us lose sight of the fact that the church is and the saints are persecuted in this world and in this life. But the promise of that section as it draws to a close in chapter 7 is that Jesus comes again. And there are 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000 that are sealed, that are protected, that are owned whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, God will bring everyone home. And that's the promise of the cycle. Then we start with the third cycle. The third cycle starts at the same place. But in this set, the cycle's warning the unbelievers. And so these are a cycle of trumpets. And the warning of the unbelievers starts out with Jesus Christ incarnate. And it rapidly moves into the trumpets. And the seven trumpets sound the warnings. And as those warnings are sounded in chapters 8 through 11, they come to a close at the end of the age with the unbeliever being warned that there is a judgment that comes and the saints will bow down before God. And the unbelievers should want to be one of those saints. And that's the warning. Now, that finishes the third cycle. Then we move into the fourth cycle. The fourth cycle, again, the same cycle, but this time the emphasis is on the spiritual warfare that's going on in this world. See, holiness of the church, the persecution of the church, the warning to the unbelievers, because what's really going on here is a spiritual battle that's been unfolding for a long time. And this starts in chapter 12 and goes through chapter 14. And it starts with, with the birthing process of, of God's people, Israel in the Old Covenant, God's people giving birth to the Messiah. And, and Revelation 12, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I don't have time. I did it last week. 
You read Revelation 12, the first five verses, and see if you don't say, well, of course, that's talking about the resurrection of the Messiah. I mean, the, the birth of the Messiah and, and his life and his resurrection and ascension to God. Because that's what it's talking about. Even though we've just finished a scene of, of judgment. So you've got that at the beginning, and then you've got this spiritual battle. And Satan is portrayed as a serpent. He's portrayed as government. He's portrayed as ideologies and thoughts. He's portrayed in antichrist ways. As, as a lamb, or, or actually looks like a lamb, but it's not a lamb. You know, this is, this is Satan's way. He'll come at you through force. He'll come at you through government. He'll come at you through economics. He'll come at you and tempt you every way he can, including false religion and philosophies. And this spiritual battle has been going on and will continue to go on until Jesus brings it to an end. And he will trample out the grapes. And he will bring the harvest home. And that's the end of the fourth cycle. And then we go to the fifth cycle. Fifth cycle starts all over again. But this time, it's no longer warning the unbeliever. Now it's judging the unbeliever. Warning has now turned to judgment. It starts out again with the song of Moses and the saints singing of the victory in Jesus. Because we have the victory. And they sing that, but as they sing it, the language and the imagery is then drawn from the plagues of Egypt. And poured out in bowls of wrath, just as Pharaoh was judged. So the unbelievers in this age stand judged. And actually receive a judgment in this age in, a different to the, in addition to the judgment to come. And that's that fifth section that we looked at. That's the section 15 and 16. And it ends with Armageddon where the evil... Oh, we'll go back to Armageddon. Armageddon where there's this big final confrontation between good and evil. Between gods and Satans. And, and, and consummation of, of the end of time. Then we've got cycle number six. Cycle number six we covered last week. It's Satan's run and fall. And so it starts out talking about Satan's having his big run. It's the harlot, the prostitute on the back of the dragon. And Satan is out there and Satan is doing all he can do to try and bring misery in spite of the fact he's already lost. And so there is an evil out there. There is a tempter out there. He'll tempt you on an individual level. He'll jack with your mind. He'll tempt you on a physical level. He'll mess with your body. He can't take possession of God's children. But boy, he can use his tools to ruin your life and make you miserable. And that's what Satan's run is. But Satan's run will end. And it will end with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the marriage supper of the Lamb, what we've got is Jesus spending his eternity in this beautiful picture with his people, with his church, with his bride. 
And that's cycle number six. Now we get to the final cycle. Now we get to this week's lesson. Cycle number seven. The final cycle is found in chapters 20, 21, and 22. And so we're going to look at those and we'll start out. And like every other cycle, starts with Jesus's earthly ministry. So if you go to Revelation chapter 20. Now, some of you are going to say, Lanier, you're just so wrong. And if you think that, God bless you, you may be right, I may be so wrong. But I'm up here teaching. (laughs) And if the Lord comes back and says, Lanier, you got that wrong, I'm not going to argue with him. I'm going to say, cool, I'm on your team, okay? But this is what I believe it teaches, the Bible teaches. And I want you to plug on and see if I can't offer you some reason to agree with me. Even if you don't agree with me, I'd like you to at least say, hey, I can see why that's standard. You know, someone asked me after class last week, does anybody agree with you other than, like, is this something you came up with? And I had to rest them assured and say, no, no, no. A whole lot of Christianity agrees with this view. This isn't Mark Lanier's view. This is a standard view if you were in a Lutheran church, in a, in a, a Reformed Calvinistic church, if you were in, in uh, um, uh, a lot of Catholic churches even, if you were in uh, a, a number of different mainline views. This is a really normal view, okay? So don't just write it off because... I, I, I don't claim to have created this, okay? Look at, now, now, when you look at this thousand years, if you just look at first blush, I think you could fairly say, Mark, how do you get that being the ministry years of Jesus? That doesn't look like the ministry years of Jesus to me. So let's look. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. By the way, Satan does not get spiritual treatment. The dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Four, not three. Through, bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the pit. Shut it, sealed it over him, so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released For a little while. Now, a thousand years is a millennia. And so this is the key passage that causes people to be premillennial, postmillennial, or mistakenly called amillennial. Premillennial means before this thousand year reign... Jesus will rapture or redeem his church. Post-millennial means after this thousand-year range, 
Jesus will rapture or redeem his church. A millennial means it's not really a thousand year reign the way you're thinking of. This thousand year reign is where we are right now. Let's look carefully, please. And remember, I firmly believe the Apostle John is writing this, but even if I'm wrong and it's another John, the Gospel of John has already been written. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, we're going to take a thousand years and just deal with it real quick. A thousand is... Not seven, it's not the complete number, it's not an eternal binding, but it's a large time period. It's just a magnifier. So for some large time period, Satan is bound. Now, when did this start? When was he bound? Has it happened already? I mean, we see him active, but I'm going to suggest to you, it has happened already. He is bound. He's on a chain. There are limits to what he can do. Let me make this suggestion. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. There was a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. Now, this blind and mute man is not blind and mute because of genetics. He's demon-oppressed. Jesus healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. They said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They saw what Jesus did as casting out That ekbalo in the Greek is the same word that is used about Satan being cast or thrown into the pit. They threw him. Same word in the Greek. Throw, cast. Same word. Okay. Let's go back. Here we go. It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, again, the same word. If Satan throws Satan out, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I throw out demons, cast out demons by Beelzebub, same word. By whom do your sons cast them out? They'll be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods Unless he first binds the strong man. Deo is the Greek word for bind. Deo is the Greek word for bind. 
It's the Greek word for bind here where Jesus says, how can I cast out Satan unless I have first bound him? It is the same word that is used in Revelation 20. That he seized the dragon and bound him. That's the Greek word deo. And cast him into, threw him into the pit. Jesus was saying that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was taking control. Now you may be saying, well, okay, maybe, maybe. Let me give you some more. Let me give you the Gospel of John. And we've got to do that on here because I didn't bring my Gospel of John. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he's having this time. He says, now is, let's see, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The crowd stands there. They hear it. They thought it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, hold on, let me, you know, the old joke about, I I would never tell an Aggie joke, so it would be about something else, Um, about about the the lady who just didn't know the difference between come here and sick them, and she got a job as a secretary, but it didn't last long. She kept putting white out on her computer screen. Anyway. All right. Um, now is the... <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious, wasn't it? All right. Now, look at this. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The same writer, John... He wrote the gospel real close in time to the revelation. Probably sent it over to Ephesus, the same place that first got the revelation. Jesus said, as he's going to the cross, now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That word cast, ekbalo, the same word as through. Him into the pit. Now, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Here's the thrust. Satan had so seduced, deceived, beguiled the world. That Jesus, the Son of God, who has performed countless miracles, is betrayed by one of his own, is given over and killed by the governing authorities when he has done nothing wrong. And there's not one believer in Jesus the Messiah the resurrected Messiah at that point in time. When Mary and Mary and the others go to the tomb on Easter Sunday, they weren't going to the tomb 
to celebrate Easter and the risen Savior. They had spices to anoint his body. They thought he was dead. Peter thought he was dead. Thomas thought he was dead even after people said he'd been risen. He wanted to poke the holes. The reason there is faith is because Satan has been bound. The reason the demons don't have their way with all of us is because Satan has limits. There is a chain on him, a great chain. And the angel brought the chain and he's chained to the pit. And he can influence and he's not without an ability to mess with people. And he's got his minions and he's got his demons, but he no longer has the ability to persuade the world there is no God. The gospel message can convert anyone who would listen and respond. There is no one beyond the reach of the gospel. There is no one where we can say, no, they're just, they're just beyond the reach of the gospel. Satan has them too entrenched. No. Satan has been bound and there will be a day where he will be released. There will be a final great tribulation, a final Armageddon, a final confrontation of good and evil. But it's at that moment that the Lord will return. But meanwhile, look what else we have here before we get to that, before we get to the release. The release comes down in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. But in the meantime, in this gospel age, look what we have. I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw, in addition to the thrones, the souls. These are disembodied souls. This is not in glorified body form. The souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And those who had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. There are three categories here. The souls of those beheaded, the martyrs, the souls of those who had not worshipped, and the souls of those who had not received its mark. The spiritual completeness here of the three is not to be missed. But John actually sees those who die in the Lord. Now, if you were here for the class where I talked about the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast is not just some... Uh, a IPC or UPC sticker that's on the head or a tracer in the arm. The, the, the purpose of that passage was a passage to say it's those, the, the, those who worship the beast are those who don't follow the lamb. Those whose names are not, these are not, what we have here are three categories that we could reduce to one if we wanted to be efficient. The saints who die in Christ before he comes again. 
It's not a sleep. You don't sleep until the Lord returns. You don't enjoy the physical resurrection yet. But there is a time where they come to life and they reign with Christ for this time period. This is why Hebrews can talk in Hebrews 11 about all of the people of faith. And then after that, after going with all of these people, Hebrews 11.39 says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. These were all in the Old Testament before Jesus. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Their perfection is found in Jesus Christ as well. People who died under the Old Testament. And then Hebrews says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There was a recognition in the early church. There was a teaching in the early church. There is a confirmation in the vision of John. That death is a transition. But for the believers, it's not an end to consciousness. We have a conscious awareness until we have that glorified body when Jesus returns again. The rest of the dead... No, they're sleeping. They don't return to life until the thousand years were ended. That's the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. We have a resurrection of our soul upon death. And over such, the second death has no power. We don't die again. We're priests of God in Christ. We reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan's released from his prison. He comes out and deceives the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, Old Testament uh, 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 symbols of, of force, to gather them for battle. Numbers like the sand of the sea. They march over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city. The camp of the saints, the beloved city. I'm sorry, I don't read it as Jerusalem. It may wind up being. But the camp of the saints, this again is that whole Exodus motif that if we were reading this in one fell swoop, we'd see. But the camp of the saints are the people of God. And Satan will come out in one final huge fuss and furor. But he will not be effective and he will not win. Fire comes from heaven, consumes them. The devil who deceived them is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and she who glorified herself and lived in luxury and all the... Oops, no, that's uh, where the beast and there we go, false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever. And now we move to the great white throne and him who seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for him. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Now you have a resurrection of the dead that did not die in Christ. Along with those who did. Standing before the throne and other books opened, which is a book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
death and Hades gave up the dead in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. And then there's a second death in the lake of fire for anyone whose name's not found in the book. This is the end. And as the cycle runs towards its end, you have the new heaven and the new earth, which David did a marvelous job talking about today. The new Jerusalem, the river of life, and then you work your way toward the end. Jesus is coming, and this is the end of the book. And as we get to the end of the book, I want you to notice a couple of things. This is kind of like the, 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 the end. So as we get to the end, we see this. Jesus said, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. I saw this. I heard it. I fell down at my feet to worship the angel that brought this message. The angel said, don't do that. I'm also a servant. But look what he says. You've got the last blessing, blah, 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 you got down to verse 18 here. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of, uh, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city described in the book. That's not a reference to all of Scripture, though maybe the principle is. But that's a very deliberate instruction, I believe, that the book of Revelation itself is a complete prophetic word for us to read and understand. That doesn't mean we don't use other Scriptures for context. But I walk extremely carefully when I start trying to insert into this book lots of other things that aren't necessarily in the book. Because I think the book itself, and, and I'm not saying people who do that, oh, you're going to hell. No, 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 no. That's, that's totally different. John's not saying that either, I don't think. What, but I do think we see here is that this book itself is a whole that is to be read and to be tried to understood by the church. The church in John's day, the church today. And I think when we see it cyclically, that works very well because it makes sense of the book in each age. Now, as we draw to a close, I was really torn about how to end the context Bible. What scripture do you put at the end after this passage in Revelation that's so massive? And if you're reading through and you read to the end, you're going to read two of my favorite doxologies, which is what I want to give you before the points for home. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord. All nations extol him. All peoples. Great is his steadfast love for us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And the other doxology from the New Testament book of Jude... The last two verses. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 
with great joy. To, our, to the only God, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the way, I'm sorry I can't pass this up. To Him who is able, one, to keep you from stumbling... To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, all four, before all time, now, and forever. Three times. Amen. It's a marvelous doxology. And so as we go back to the PowerPoint, I offer you the following. Regardless of how you read Revelation, it ends the same way. And that seventh cycle that I see ending, you've got still the Gog and Magog war. I'm not taking that away. I think it's there. But it still ends with Jesus on the throne and his saints with him. So with that, I would like to pray... Jude over you, your holiday season. I'm so excited about next year. Phil Keggy has written a song for our first day of class that we will have in church history. Give you a hint. Don't know much about church history. (laughs) Would you stand and let me say this over you, standing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority in your life, in the life of your loved ones, in your occupation, in your vocation, in your ministry, in your service. May God be given glory and dominion and power and honor in all that you are, in all that you think, in all that you do. May he use you to touch people and bring his gospel message at this time when it can be heard and received. When the enemy is bound and has no power over us and your message. Lord, we pray that through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, our King forever. Amen.